In Parak Yud Bey's Pasuk Tesvav, the Torah tells us that after Miriam, together with Aaron, spoke Lashon Hara about Moshe Rabbeinu, their brother, so Miriam became a Mitzayra, she, she, she became full of Tsaras, and she had to be quarantined for a week. And the Pasuk says something remarkable, that during this week of Miriam's being quarantined, the whole nation, the whole Shishim Rebai of Klal Yisrael, Anoshim, Noshim Betach, millions of people, they did not budge. They did not move. They waited in their encampment until after the Tsaras was cured from Miriam, and only then did the Am march forward. And Rashi explains why this happened. What was the great reward that she got? What, what did she do to deserve that? That's a very big thing to have an entire nation waiting for you for a whole week, not budging, just waiting in abeyance until, until you get healed. That's a very big schos. What was the schos, the greatest schos that Miriam had to warrant such a covet, and Rashi says, All the way back at the beginning of Sefer Shemais, when baby Moshe was put into a little teva and was set into the Yar, into the Nile River into the marshland in order to save him Miriam who had placed him there waited she waited to see what would happen to him she didn't just scurry off as soon as she dropped him in but rather she stood there and waited for a little while to see what would happen and because of that hour let's say that she was Miss Akba that she waited, that she delayed herself instead of rushing home, instead of rushing to her job, wherever she was going to go. She waited a little bit to see where, to see what would happen with her brother, Moshe Rabbeinu. Because of that little moment in time, Klal Yisrael waited for her. Millions of people waited for Miriam an entire week because Miriam waited for a few minutes in time early on in the history of Kla Yisrael and Mitzrayim. And the Bali Musar learned from this Rashi, from this Chazal, a tremendous Musar, a tremendous Yisayim. And that is how valuable every little thing that we do in life is. This is something that, you know, you would say, of course, it's a no-brainer. We would all do this. If we had a little baby brother that we were putting into a, into a, a body of water, I think we would all just wait around and see exactly how he's doing, if he's crying, if somebody's going to maybe see him. This is a natural thing. And what is the big deal? It's in a couple of minutes, maybe an hour or two. It's not a major thing that she did. This is not like a her- Herculean effort or some major, you know, major act of, of heroism. What did she do? She waited, and for that act of waiting for a couple of minutes, for that, Claudia Yisrael had to wait for her. And what we see from this is that every little thing, or every seemingly trivial little thing that we do right in life, as small and seemingly insignificant as it may be, HaKadosh Baruch rewards us in ways that we can't fathom. Nothing at all in life that we do should be looked at us as being meaningless or being not important or being something that's not even on the radar screen, whatever we do. Throughout the entire day and throughout our entire lives, every second, second by second, frame by frame, pixel by pixel, is so valuable that it's not possible to fathom the greatness of every little activity that we engage in. That's what the Balin Musa learned from this Rashi.
I can't say this Vart without mentioning something that I had heard as a as a Bachar in in Long Beach Yeshiva from the Mashkiach or Pitter. Um, at the end of Parshas Vayera is probably the most famous episode in Tanakh, and that of course is the Akedah. And the Akedah, I think if I would ask you, you know, by a show of hands, which I won't, but if I were to, if I'd ask you, don't you think that the most important part of the Akedah, that the climax of the whole mice of the Akedah is the moment in time when Avram Avinu is about to shech Yitzchak and Amalek comes down and says, don't touch the now. That would undoubtedly be the greatest moment of the episode because that was the Nisayan. Wasn't that the test? The test was HaKadosh wanted to see the loyalty and the faithfulness of his servant Avram Avinu and he asked him to do the impossible to shaft his bimchas, yichitchas, ha'aptas, yitzchak, the destiny of Kal Yisrael, the personal Yerish of Avram Avinu, the child who he loved more than life itself, and shaft all of that, me'avas Hashem. And Avram Avinu did that. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said it, and he did it. Avram Avinu picks up his hand with a knife, va'ikach esamacheles, lishchait espinai, and a malach comes and says, Avram, Avram, don't touch Yitzchak, don't make anything, a dent, don't make a nick in him. Because now I know, you fear Hashem, and you don't even, you wouldn't even refrain from giving up your own child for me. And that would be the, if I was writing the Torah, I would end the parasha right there. That is the highlight, that's the climax, that's where you want to leave the image. You want to freeze frame it right there, and then, and then the credits should start going on the screen, because it can't get higher than that. That is it. He did what Hashem wanted in a beautiful way, HaKadosh Baruch appreciated it, and that's it. That's the end of the Akedah. But we know that it's not the end of the Akedah. If you look at the Psukim later, there's about, about, uh, what's 19 minus 13 is 6 Psukim, right? 6 Psukim after that of things that don't even really seem to be like a big deal. Avram Avinu, after the, after the mouth says this to him, he lifts his eyes, he sees a ram that was Tangled in the brush and the thorns by its horns, and Avraham Avinu goes and takes the ayo and shechts it. He takes it and he brings a carbon in lieu of Yitzchak. So that's a nice, you know. I would write that maybe as a footnote. You know, if you want to know what happened, okay. After the mice of the akedah, he did a, you know, he he brought a he brought a ram, you know, which you can purchase, and he got it for free. He could have purchased it for fifty bucks. And he brought that on the on the Akedah that has been that's not like a major, is that such a big deal? Right, but the Torah says that's what happened. And not only that, if you think, well, okay, the Torah just wanted to finish the story. Vayikra Avram Shem Rakhmu Hashem and then Vayikra Malach Hashem Elikim El Avram Shenis Meshamayim. A Malach of Hashem comes again, a second time to Avram Avinu from Shemayim. And here, he doesn't just say like a one pasuk compliment to Avram Avinu. Here we get a whole beautiful Rebbe Shabracha to Avram Avinu. You did this matter and you didn't hold him back. You're going to be like the stars in heaven, like the sand on the sea, on the beach. And your children will inherit the gateways of the enemy. And all of the nations of the world will bless, will be blessed or will bless your children. Because you listen to my voice. And then Avraham Avinu went back to Beersheba with his, with the, his entourage. And then he settled in Beersheba. That's the end of the Parshas Akedah. It's a very strange ending. 
Avraham Avinu was willing to shecht his son. Okay, that's pretty good. You know, we'll give you a bracha that, uh, you know, that you're a Yareli Kimata, you're a good boy, you did good. Nice, nice job, Avraham Avinu. Then he goes, not Yitzchak, but he brings an Ayo, a little Ayo, he brings a, 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 you know, a little animal on the Mizbeach, and that is what all of a sudden he gets all the major brachas and the major compliments come, not after he shechts his, he's willing to shech Yitzchak, but when he brings the Ayo, Tachas tonight, then all of a sudden, heaped upon him is loads and loads of brachas about how his children will be blessed, they're going to be Yerushalayim, and they're going to be, you know, so multiplicous that they're going to be like the sea, like the sand, and like the stars, for what, for bringing the sheep, that, 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 that was more important than bringing Yitzchak, what's going on over there, why is this even in the Torah? Why is this bringing of the sheep, even a, the ram, even a, a, like an important part of the story? But you see that it is, that it made it into the Chumash. Not only did it make it into the Chumash, but the Ma'al came a second time and really laid it on thick with brachas after that, more than the Akedah Yitzchak itself. So he wanted to say, basically the same insight that we're saying this morning, and that is that the small things are important. Sometimes, in fact, the little things in life that we do are even more important than the big things that we do. Because sometimes, and this is a little bit of a hard concept to understand, the big things in life, the major you know, accomplishments that we have, are a lot easier to do than the small things. If there is something that you know, the cameras are on us, and, you know, we're, we have to rush into a burning building and we're going to get a lot of cover and it's, the, you know, a very important time in your life. You have adrenaline and you're going to do it. And, you know, and, and, and that's obviously a difficult thing, but it's something that, you know, it's a human, it's a human instinct to do great things in life. If Hashem would come to all of us and ask us to do, you know, something like, okay, this is, I don't know if we'd be able to be on many side. I hope that we would be able to. But... It's very plausible that we would. After all, Hashem Himself came to us. It's not, it doesn't take any guesswork. Hashem is communicating with us. He's telling us exactly what He wants. If this is what God wants, this is what I'm going to do. And it happened, you know, millions of times just 70, 80 years ago in the concentration camps where Kal Yisrael did the impossible. Their Meister Nefesh Al Kiddush Hashem, they did something that was so amazing that this Chus is Aimedes Lad. Those amazing things, I'm not to take, not to take any credit away from any of the Kedoshim or anyone doing amazing things in life, but that is something that is doable, and it's because these are the great moments of life that we are able to sort of up our game and respond to the great calling of our destiny, which, which is to do these things. The question is, after the camera is off, and after the lights are turned off, and nobody is looking, and basically now it's not even like a major event anymore. Now it's the aftermath. The Akedah is over. Obama being a passed the test. What does he do now? Does he just say, okay, Yitzchak, we did our job, Baruch Hashem, we can bend Shreimah, let's go home? Or does he say, no, that's not the end. I want to do something for Hashem. I didn't come here to pass a test. I came here to do the Ratzon of Hashem. I want to give HaKadosh Baruch Hu you. I wasn't able to give him you. So instead I'm going to give him something. And all of a sudden he sees this ayo stuck in the brush. He shechts him. That is what is impressive. More so than even bringing the Yitzchak on the Akedah. The bringing of the ayo after the Maish of the Akedah. That's greatness. Because greatness is being able to pay attention to the details that nobody is really paying attention to. Those little things in life that we tend to gloss over, we don't even look at them as, they're, as if they're important. Because they're not like on a stage with a million people looking and it's not like going to get on, in the newspapers or on, or on the internet and it's not even, it's nothing. It's seemingly insignificant. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is paying attention to those things as well, and perhaps he's even paying more attention to those things, because those little things in life, 
that a lot of people ignore, HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't ignore. HaKadosh Baruch Hu focuses on them and looks at those little things to really see what type of person we are. And so that's why after he brought the Ayo on the Akedah instead of Yitzchak, that's when the mouth comes down a, sh- a second time from Shemayim and starts telling him amazing brachas because that is what made Avram Avram. Avram Avinu was not merely Avram because he was willing to give Yitzchak on the Akedah, which was an awesome sacrifice, obviously. But the fact that after the mice of the Akedah, he was doing the ayo on the Akedah because he wanted to do more, a little bit extra. That little bit of extra is really what I can sparkle ways, perhaps even more sometimes in the major things in life. There's a story that's told about the wife of the Grah. The Vilna Gain's wife was a Gaboy's Tzedakah. She was in charge of a big Tzedakah fund in the city of Vilna. She was the Rebbitzin of Vilna. And she was one of the Rebbitzins of Vilna. She was, there was really an official Rav in the city of Vilna, not the Grah. The Grah had his face medrash, but the Grah's Hashpa obviously was, you know, completely cast over the city of Vilna, if you look in the Hakdama to the Bir HaGra and Shulchan Aruch, in the Hakdama to Arachayim, his sons, the Gra's, the Gra's sons write an introduction to the Bir HaGra, and they describe the, the profound influence that the Gra had on the Anshe Vilna. He wasn't the official Rav of Vilna, but he had, obviously, you know, you have a, a, a person of the towering magnitude of the Vilna guy sitting near, in your city, even though he didn't really even have much to do with the people of Hamaynam, he was sitting in the base Medrash in Malaywa. He had a few select Talmidim that learned in the base Medrash and was mushba from him. And, but anyway, his hashpa spread throughout Vilna. And his wife was the Gabay Sadaka, and she had a partner. Her and another woman were together the Gabayis of the Tzedaka fund in Vilna. And the Gra's wife's partner was very sick. She was on her deathbed after doing many, many decades of chesed together with 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 the Gra's Rebbitzin. And the wife of the Gra says to her, listen, she says, we don't know how much longer you have. Obviously, you're very, very ill. If Khalila, something should happen and you, your neshama leaves this world, we've been partners for many years. Come back to me in a dream after you die and tell me what's going on up there tell me the schar that we've gotten for all the chesed activity that, that we partnered in throughout our life so a few weeks later after this woman was nifter she came back in a dream to the guy's wife as was, as was agreed upon and she said to her she says, Baruch Hashem, I have a lichtig Gan Eden. It's a beautiful Gan Eden. We did well. We did a lot of great chesed in this world, and the reward is great. So the wife of the Gra was able, apparently, to communicate and ask a question and say to her, was our schar equal? Did we get equal schar? Are we equal shutzim in everything? So she says, sort of. Yes and no. In general, our schar is equal. But if you remember a couple of years ago, we were going to a certain wealthy woman's house in Vilna to get money for our tzedakah, and we knocked on her door, nobody was home. And then we started walking back, and all of a sudden that woman was coming towards her home and you noticed her. And you lifted up your finger and said, oh look, there she is, she's coming. For that particular incident, we both got scar for the money that we were able to raise from that lady. But your scar was much greater than mine because you lifted up your finger to point to that lady as she was walking in the street. And this became a very famous story because... What it shows is the dicta kadin. I don't want to get into the scary part of what that, that means because 
you know, I, I, it's the summer, I like to keep things nice and soft. I don't want you to feel like, you know, you should have been studying for finals instead of coming here. But every single thing that we do, Latayv, let's keep it positive. Everything that we do, Latayv, in life has amazing star. Nothing is glossed over. The reason why we don't believe that, really, is because in life, where the human mind is able to gloss over years. If I were to ask you, or let's say if you were to ask me, do you remember anything that happened in the year, you know, 2003? I could start making a cheshpan exactly, you know, where I was and what year of marriage it was and which kid I had that year, maybe. But... You know, I don't know what I, you know, what Sukkot looked like in 2003 versus 2004. I don't remember Hanukkah in 2003 versus 2004. I don't remember. It's like a whole year of my life, you know, has been completely like, it's a year. I'm sure I, you know, I did hopefully, you know, what I was generally supposed to do. I'm sure I had, you know, my Milas, my Pesrenas that year, like any year. But it's an amazing thing that we really, our minds do not, at least my mind does not have the ability really to have one of these instant recalls of every day. If I were to ask you what you do on, you know, on December 3rd, 2007, like, I don't know if anyone would be able to, unless you keep a diary, like, that's a day that's completely gone. You know, I think it's safe to say we put on filling and we did this and we did that, but, you know, but short of that, like, what did we, what was it? And so that's the way life goes. That's why a lot of times I tell Bachram and Yeshiva they're like in this mad rush to graduate college. They take like, you know, 30 credits a semester and they're really, you know, trying hard. And like they're racing out of here. Like, where are you going? Well, you know, we want to get into graduate school. So we're di- like, you won't know. I promise you, you won't know when you're 30 years old, when you're 40 years old, when you're 80 years old for sure. You're not going to know the difference between 2013 or 2015. But you, if you learn an extra year or two in yeshiva before you leave, that's a, that's going to treat that that's a tremendous difference throughout your whole life in terms of your your career, in terms of everything else. These years, like it just it's so it's almost sad how like it all just bleeds into each other. That's not to say that every day is not vitally important. It is. But just in retrospect, you know, we forget. The human mind doesn't really have this perfect recollection of everything. And so we think that in Shemayim it's the same way. We think in Shemayim, just like our whole life is one big blur, we're looking back. So Hashem also has like this really murky vision of us. And as long as we are sort of, you know, pushing towards the good side and not to the bad side, so we're okay. But it doesn't work that way. In Shemayim... There's nothing that's glossed over. There's no such thing as forgetfulness and absent-mindedness and, and, you know, and murkiness. Everything is clear. And every little thing that we do is recorded. And whatever we have done positively and negatively, but let's stick to the positive, whatever we do positively is recorded and the schar is... It's like an earthquake in Shamayim. Every little thing that we do, every word that we say with Kavana, every word of Torah that we learn, every penny of tzedakah that we give, every act of chesed that we do, whether anyone knows about it or nobody knows about it, the Rabbi Shalom knows about it, everything is, is there. Everything is real. Everything is noticed. And we see that from Miriam. Miriam waited a couple of minutes in you know a couple of many many years ago, and for that the entire Kliyosol comes to a grinding halt, a standstill, waiting for Miriam a whole week, seven days times three million, for what? For the investment of a couple of minutes of a young girl's time waiting for a kid brother who was just put in a basket in the Nile. Like, what's the big deal? Because to us. Nothing's a big deal. Everything is trivial. Everything is just, you know, time, time, time. So the Rabbi Yishlam, everything is real. Every little act is meaningful. Your schar is for every little thing that you do. And sometimes for the little things more than the greater things.
just as a as a supplement to that or a complement to that story about the wife of the Grah, I saw recently in a Sefer that there was a um, the Lamja Rosh Yeshiva, his name is Rebichil Michal Gordon. Before the war, there was a great yeshiva in the city of Lamja. And the Rashiva had a daughter who was a Kawa. Her name was Frida. I also have a daughter, Frida Hashem. He had a daughter, Frida, who was a Kawa. And she, and then he set off to, to England to collect money for the Lamja Yeshiva. And he was planning on going from London to New York. And in New York, he had a relative who was wealthy and he was going to borrow from him you know, a few hundred dollars to pay for all the wedding expenses and the dowry for his daughter Frida, and that was part of the trip. He arrives in London, and he receives a letter from his daughter Frida. He opens up the letter, he reads it, and he faints. And when he comes to, they ask him, you know, what did it say in that letter? Is everything okay? He says, it wasn't bad news. He says, I've never seen such an inspirational, moving letter in my life from my daughter, or from anybody. She writes in the letter to her father that she has a friend who's also a Kala, and her father had money earmarked for her chasna, and she lent, and he lent out that money a couple of months before the engagement to somebody, you know, who needed money really badly. And on the basis of that, of the understanding that he would get the money back, you know, this should have took place, and he was, you know, promising a certain amount. And all of a sudden, this the leiva that borrowed money from from her father was not able to pay, and he made it very clear that I'm sorry, I do not have the money, I can't repay the loan. And so here this Kala was stuck because the father now had no money to pay for the dowry of the Chasna. And this Chasna, you know, was supposed to go forward, but they didn't have the promised funds to pay for all the expenses to set up a home. And the Shidduch was about to break as a result of this terrible news. So the daughter writes to her father, Tati, I spoke to my Chasna, and my chassan said that together we decided that we will forego the money that you were going to borrow from your relative in, in America. And we want that that money that you're going to raise should not go for us, but it should go to my friend. Because if I could get that money for my friend, then her shidduch can go and she's so scared and she's so stressed out and she's so nervous that her chassan's about to break the shidduch because they can't afford... I'm going to give that money to, I'm going to promise the money that you're going to bring to her, and we'll make do, we'll be able to skimp and to save and to cut corners, and we're not going to, we're not going to, we're going to live very low, but we're going to be able to get through it. And I don't think that my friend will be able to do that, so I want that that money that you're raising should go to her. And he was so moved by this letter that he fainted. He couldn't believe the generosity of spirit that his daughter had and her chassan. And he showed this letter to Bicheskel Abramsky. Bicheskel Abramsky at the time was the Dayan in London. He was the Abbasin of London, a tremendous guy in the Chazayn Bicheskel. We have a svarim on the on the Taisefta. Massive work on this. A brilliant, brilliant scholar, a great Amachacham, who later in his life he moved to Eretz Yisrael and. He, he lived in, in Yerushalayim and he gave shurim throughout Eretz Yisrael. But he was a known guy. I mean, everybody was scared of him. He was a, a tremendous powerhouse in learning. But he was also a, a, a tzaddik. And he took, he showed him, Rabbi Chil Michal Gordon showed Rabbi Cheskel Abramsky this letter. Rabbi Cheskel was so moved that he says, I want to take upon myself to raise the funds for that kawa. That Achnos' kawa, that's on me. And he went, and he went to a lot of Alabatim throughout London. He raised the money, and he brought a check back to Rebichil, Michal Gordon, and he says, I raised Baruch Hashem all the money. We're going to send off the check to this Kalo. So he said, okay, thank you very much. It's a tremendous act. Give it to me, and I'll, I'll take care of it. He says, no, no, no. He says, 
I heard about the Misa of the wife of the Grah and how every little thing counts. How every single lifting up of a finger to point to somebody how much star she got more than the other one more than her partner, just for lifting up her little finger. That HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave her schar for as well. Says, I'm going to take care of everything. From soup to nuts, I'm going to do the whole mitzvah. Not only did I raise all the money, not only do I have a check in my hand, I'm going to get the envelope myself, I'm going to write the, the address myself, I'm going to write the return address myself. I'm going to go to the post office myself. I'm going to pay for this, the postage myself. I'm going to put it in the mailbox myself. Every little, slight, minor, trivial detail. It's on me. I'm doing it. It's my mitzvah. I'm not giving up one single prop to anybody else. That's how we have to look at life. Life is not just, you know, nothingness on, on top of nothingness. I mean, the, you know, the, the hevel of life is, certainly. But the mitzvahs and the chesed and the goodness, the kindness that we do, every little extra thing counts. There is nothing that we should think of as being unimportant. Everything that we do is important. And everything is counted, and there's a cheshben ha-nefesh for everything, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu pays back schar kefal keflayim of what we've done, even for the smallest things in life. Not only does HaKadosh Baruch Hu pay back for the small things in life, but we get paid back in this world, not just in Elam Haba, not just after this life, but we could see Paris of the small things that we do already in this world. My favorite story, I think of all the stories, is a story that happened in the Panovich Yeshiva about maybe 30 years ago. There was a Bachar from Switzerland who came to Panovich and he wanted a bed in the Yeshiva. And he wanted to, to, to be enrolled in the Yeshiva. So the staff of the Yeshiva, the administrator, said... We're very sorry, we have a maximum of a thousand bakram, a thousand tamidim in yeshiva. You're one thousand and one, we don't have a bed for you, we don't have room for you, I'm sorry, you have to go back. He was from Zurich, he was from Switzerland, a very wealthy boy. I don't know if the administrators knew that at the time, but he was a very wealthy boy, and they turned him away, they said, you have to go home, sorry. So the boy said, can I please speak to the Rebbitson? I want to speak to the Panavichurov's wife. Panavichurov's wife? They said, like, what do you want to speak to? I mean, you know, we're in charge of admissions. I mean, she's not really on the, on the admissions board. Like, what do you need to speak to her about? He says, Don't, do me a favor. Just let me speak to the Panavichurov's Okay. So they show her where she, where she lives, and they go. And he comes, and... The Rebbitzin says, Shalom Aleichem, well, what can we do for you? So he says, well, I wanted to come to Yeshiva, and they say that there's only a thousand beds here, and there's not an extra bed in the whole Yeshiva. She says, okay, well, that's what they said, that's what, sorry, you know, there's not much to do about that. So he takes out of his pocket a piece of paper, not a gun, a piece of paper, and he gives it to the Panavichur Rebbitzin, and she reads it, and she says to the administrators, He's in. Let's just go to the Rav, but he's in. It's like, what do you mean he's in? What, what is on that paper already? Like, what? Well, so they go to the Rav, and the Rav sat, looks at the paper, and he says, this boy is in. Find him a bed, make a bed, buy a bed, get a bed. He's in the yeshiva. 16-year-old boy. So... The administrators obviously were a little curious, and this is the story. What was on that piece of paper? Ten years earlier, in Switzerland, the Panovich Rav had just had 
surgery in Eretz Yisrael, and the doctor said that you have to go to recuperate. You can't have all the stress, you can't walk so much, you can't talk so much, you can't run around, you can't be busy with collecting money for the yeshiva, you can't give shirim. You have to relax. You cannot just complete, you're gonna, it's not gonna work. You have to recuperate, you have to, you know, have some respite after the surgery. So, and the best place to go in the world is Switzerland. Beautiful mountains, beautiful fresh air, and nice trees, and nice mountains, and, you know, it's the best place. The Briskarov used to go there every year to, you know, to vacate. Yeah, you want to take a vacation, the place to go is Switzerland. Fine. So, he went to this hotel, very nice kosher Jewish hotel in Switzerland, and they, you know, they had a reservation there. They get to the front desk. The innkeeper, the hotel owner, is there, and the Rebbitzin says, "My husband's upon a mitzvah. We need a first floor room. We can't go up to the third floor. We can't go up to the tenth floor. We can't we, we? You know, we need a low floor, a, a bottom floor, because he can't climb steps. And the elevators in those days can't climb steps. And." We need a first. So he looked through. He said, "Sir, we don't have any rooms on the first floor. The lowest floor that we have is the third floor." So she said, "It can't be. We just—it's just impossible. He needs a room on the first floor." So the innkeeper understood that this was the Galadar, and they, you know, wanted to accommodate him. So he went to one of the people that came back every single year to that hotel, they're wealthy people, and they have the same room in this hotel, like a VIP suite in that hotel, in that hotel, every single year, that's where they went. It was a mother and a son, the father was on a business trip, the mother and the son together were staying in the hotel, in that room. So the innkeeper knocks knocks on the door, and asks the lady, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, you know, would you be, you know, agreeable to move up to the third floor. We have a very important rabbi, the Panovich is in the hotel, and he can only be on the first floor. She says, by me it's fine, but you have to ask the young cavalier, that's how she would call him, he would, they were from Switzerland, and they, this was a vacation place, and so they were from Zurich, you have to ask the young cavalier, the young gentleman, if he's Maschimosa, because it's inconvenient for him to go up to the third floor. And here was a six-year-old child. And he says, of course, I'll, it's the Gadladar, I'm happy to give up my room for him. So they schlep all their stuff up, or they have, you know, the bellhop schlep all the stuff up, and the, the, the Kahnemans, the Panamitrov and his wife, move into the first floor. And after everything is settled, the Rebbitzin goes up to the third floor and wants to thank this mother and son personally. And she says to him, she says, you know, thank you so much. You don't know how much it means. My husband really needs to rest and he can't climb the stairs. And because of you, it's going to be a mitzvah a great vacation for us. And she thanks this mother again and again. She says, you don't have to thank me, but you have to thank the young cavalier. So she thanks him and she says, what can I give you? She says, I'm planning on going into town. They have delicious, you know, Switzerland is famous for their chocolates. They have delicious kosher chocolates in town. Do you like chocolate? Can I bring you back a, a you know, a little chocolate from the store? Says, no, I don't, I don't need chocolate. Baruch Hashem. Says, well, maybe I can get you a little, you know, gift, a little souvenir, a little something. Says, no, I don't really need any of that. Thank you very much. It's fine. Says, surely there is something that I could give you, something that I could give you to repay your kindness. So he says, if you want to give me something, I'll tell you what you can really give me. He says, I'm six years old. In ten years, I'm going to want to learn in Panovich. It's the greatest yeshiva in the world. It's the Ivy League yeshiva. That's where I want to learn. He says, I'm giving up my bed to the Panovich Rav. I want you to make sure that the Panovich Rav will give me a bed when I need it. The Rebison was very moved by this. She sat down, she, write a, she wrote a note. I'm hereby promising Lineder that this young man, the young cavalier, will have a bed in the Panovich Yeshiva whenever he wants to enroll.
and she signed it. She ran down to her husband, and he signed it. And they came. He came. She came back up, gave the letter to this boy. The boy gave the letter to his mother. When they came back to their house in Zurich, they put it in the family safe in the house. And when he was going off to Panovich, when he was 16 years old, the mother said, in case there's no beds in yeshiva, don't forget to give the rabbits in this letter. And he did, and that was the letter that this boy brought, and that's what got him a bed in Panovich. And this boy became a Talmud Chacham, and he still is today, he learns in the morning the Kailuch Hazanish, in the afternoon he, he does business and there's so many Yisaitis that you can learn from this story but in the context of this morning's Shmuz we see how every little thing that you do has such great ramifications how this boy when he was six years old what did he do already? He gave up his bed gave up his bed so, I mean, it's very nice, he had to go now to the third floor, he's a kid, what's the big deal? But because he was willing to do that, and he also had the, you know, the foresight to ask for what he asked, because of that, the Paris that he was able to get from that are just boundless. Because what we do in life, every little act of chesed that we do, has completely unfathomable Paris. That's just the way, that's the way that the world works. And it's the big people in life, the great people, the smart people that are able to understand how important the little things are in life and not to ignore them and not to think that they're too petty for them to engage in. You know, my father, Oliver Shalom, one thing when I was sitting Shiva for him, you know, that the constant refrain, and up until today people call me or they bump into me, what the first thing they say about my father was that they never met a more dignified person. He was a person that was always dressed very well. He was a European, you know, he always dressed, you know, in a suit and a tie and everything was just so and you know, and the way just the way his whole manner his whole halach yelach in life was just kulei aimer kavod. It was just, just he was just you know just a respectable human being, just a very classy, very elegant person. And my father, about maybe 20, 25 years ago, uh, undertook a very big project in the city where we lived in Long Beach, and that was to build a mikvah. And he basically single-handedly raised all the money. You know, it costs a lot of money to build a mikvah. First you have to get the land, and then you gotta build a house, and you gotta build, you know, hire professional architects and engineers, and, 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 you know, who are mumcha and, in Hilchas mikvahs, to build the bayris just so, and the, the pipes, and the, everything has to be just so. It's a very, very complicated, very, very cost intensive project to build a mikvah of any, of any type. And he did a mamash the Mahajram in a Mahajram. He got the best and the finest people to plan it and to engineer it and to paskin on it and to, and, and every tile was, you know, he handpicked and every single part, everything was him. And then, you know, normally a person, you know, you, you, you're the big picture guy, you build it and then you just like, you know, you let like some women handle it or some, you know, some, some women that are volunteering and, you know, that's generally the way McVeigh's work, or you hire some, you know, young couple to take care of it, and that happened in the mikvahs of my father, after he retired, he would go every single day after davening, he davened the young Israel of Long Beach, and at the end of the block, it's like a block away to the mikvah, and he would every day after davening go into the mikvah, and many mornings I would come with him, and first he would go to the local bakery, and get a Danish and a coffee for the cleaning lady that she should have something to eat. And the Chveida Ba'atzmai, he would go and he would take all the dirty towels from the men's side of the mikvah, from the ladies' side of the mikvah, and it personally, something I'd never seen him do at home ever, but, you know, he would take these dirty towels and, you know, 
it's really dirty towels, and it's a mikvah. These, you know, and put them in the washing machine, put the detergent in the washing machine, turn on the washing machine, take out the old towels that were, the, the towels that were from the dryer, fold the towels from the dryer, make sure that the soap was in the right place, make sure that the brushes were in the right place, the Q-tips were in the right place, that every little thing was so perfect. And it was so, like, strange for me to see my father in that capacity because, you know, he was so elegant. And yet at the same time, he was able to, you know, do these, like, completely menial tasks that, you know, were so seemingly beneath him. But big people are able to do the smaller things in life and not think that it's beneath them. It's a covet. It's a covet, you know, in the, in the yeshiva of Kelm, they used to bid, you know, we bid here in Yeshiva for Ataresa, for Aliyas on, on the Amnairayim, on Shvues, for different Kibudim, for Chasim Tarek, Chasim Bereshis, and you know, that's understandable. You know, who would not want to get Shlishi? Who would not want to get Maftu Yaina? Who would not want to get Psicha for Nilo? In Kelim, they had bidding also. You know what they would bid on? It was like, you know, 10,000 black. For what? For the Schos? To clean the toilets. I get to clean the toilets in Kelm. I get to mop the floor. I get to do a sponge. I get to, you know, to clear the tables after, after the sudas. I get to clean up all the dirty tissues from the table from the Mesmeres before Shabbos. I get to put away all the pens. That was what they were bidding on. The more menial, the more valuable. The psicha for and Kelm was cleaning the toilets. Because the lower that you could go on behalf of another yid, they understood the emes. They understood that the smallest things that nobody pays attention to are the most powerful things in the world. You know, so many times, you know, we're walking, and I'm guilty of this myself. I don't never want to give a shmooz that I'd be a hypocrite. But, you know, sometimes you walk into a base marriage and out of the corner of your eye, peripherally, you see that there's a tissue on the floor. You see that there's a pen on the floor. There's a piece of paper on the floor. And I see, like, you know, a lot of them just looking right now as I'm, you know, as I'm looking around the room. Most of them are probably under my table. And we don't look at them. We pretend not to see them. Or in the dormitory rooms. You come into the room and there's garbage on the table or there's something that, you know... We pretend that I let somebody else do. What do I have to do it for? What do I have to clean the pot? You know, there are you know a hundred people enjoy the show, but I gotta be the one to clean the pot? Let somebody else do it. Who's supposed to do it? Who's that somebody else that's supposed to do it? Why is it not you? Why is it not me? If we would be able to understand this schmooze and let it sink into the into the head and into the heart, we would be dying, we'd be fighting for this close to clean the chillin pot after Mishmah. We would be dying for every scrap of paper on the floor. That's mine. Every time that there is some tissues in the bathroom, you know, the bathroom's a little bit untidy. I want to clean that. That's my mitzvah. And nobody has to know about it. Nobody should know about it. I always say, you know, the urn in the, in the, in the, in the pantry. Somebody, there's a malach that's filling it up every single day so that we can all enjoy coffee. Who's that malach? Maybe you know, maybe you don't know. Sometimes I see some people doing it, some, sometimes I don't. I can guarantee you one thing. That guy's Olam Haba is, is unbelievable because every time a guy in the middle of Seder, you know, wants a cup of coffee and in order to revitalize himself, in order to give him some chiyas or if his throat is hurting a little bit, he needs to, you know, wet in his throat. And they go to that machine. That's his chus. That's the chus of that person, that malach that filled up the urn. And when you have a base medrash, that's neat. When the svarim are put away, whether it's your job or not, whether you're being paid for it or not, it's irrelevant. It's such a powerful, mighty chus that we should be fighting over it. You should see like a, a barroom brawl in the base medrash every day to take every styrofoam cup and throw it in the garbage. We don't look at it that way because we think that's for the janitor. The janitor, I'm, I'm the kind of the janitor. It might be he gets paid for it, but you know this chus that he has for cleaning a base medrash? Don't ever look at anything in life as being beneath you. There is nothing in life that's beneath you. If you're ignoring the things that are beneath you, 
then you are missing out on 95% of life. So many times when people are married, Shalom bias issues. What's a Shalom bias issue? You take out the garden. No, you take out the garden. You take out the You take out you should be fighting to take out the garbage. You should be fighting to set the table and clear the table and do the, do the dishes and change the diapers. There's nothing that's beneath us. Who are we? What are we? The prince of, you know, of Sheba? Like, who, what, what made us think that we are above, you know, above everybody else in society? We are. We're the Amanifka, we're the Mamachas Kainim, but the Mamachas Kainim is defined by the small things, by the Miriam, by the Tetzatzavach, waiting, anticipating, looking out for somebody else, putting your arm around somebody's shoulder, making them feel good, saying, you look great today. You played really well. You had a great day of learning. That was a great passion that you asked. All of these things are not trivial. They're not beneath us. This is what defines us. This is what makes us great. Greatness is not merely because you finish shas. Greatness is the fact that every morning you came to the base matters to learn. And every day you said good morning to somebody. And every single time you saw something that was a little bit off, whether it's a human being's face that was a little bit off, or whether it was something that was in the base matters that needed fixing, or whether it was somebody outside of the yeshiva that you know is having a problem and you give them a call, those are the trivial things that make us great. HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us schar for everything. In the next world, in this world, that's what greatness is. Greatness is when the Malach comes the second time to Avraham Avinu. The first time, that was, of course, great. But it wasn't really great. Great is how you follow up, how you see everything small, and how you magnify it and make the small things into great things. And Mitzvah Hashem, that's what we should be zeichet to. We should see life differently today. We should see everything as being my mitzvah. I want to chop. It's my schos. It's my schos to, to help you, to learn with you, even though you may not be on my level. It's my schos to be able to clean up and to pick up stuff that I see on the floor and before Shabbos make the base matters tidier. It's my schos to be able to fill up the urn and to clean the chillin pot. All these things, that's beneath me. I don't want to do that. Why not? What, what do you have against doing that? You're too great? If you're too great to do that, then you're not great at all. If you look at yourself that that's a schos, then you're great. And that's the insight of life. Life is defined by small things. The smaller, the better. The opposite of what the world thinks. The greatness that we understand in people is measured not by the great leaps and bounds that he does in life, but by the small, trivial things that he has an eye for and is focused on. That's what will make us great. And Mitzvah Hashem, we should all be zeicha to such godless and have a wonderful Shabbos.